0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Weekly Appellate Report podcast. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, editor of the Daily Appellate Report, a print supplement to the Los Angeles and San Francisco Daily Journal. With this weekly program, we intend to provide an in-depth review of all things appellate law, recent rulings, oral arguments, petition grants, and plenty of other news and trends in appellate law that impact California practitioners. A bit of housekeeping to start, The program will be taped throughout the week, and issue on Friday mornings. It will feature commentary from prominent appellate specialists and other California practitioners, along with jurists and academics. If you're listening to this and feel you have a salient appellate law issue you'd like to discuss on the program, please do not hesitate to contact me. My information is on our site and in the Daily Journal newspaper. A second note, we will offer one CLE credit for listening to an episode of the program. There is a test attached to this podcast on our website. Find that, and you'll see along with it the details you'll need to obtain CLE credit. And finally, if you happen to receive a link to this podcast but are unfamiliar with the Daily Journal, we are a legal affairs publication in California. And you can find out more at www.dailyjournal.com. Having dispensed with those preliminaries, let's get on to today's program. We have a good one for you. We'll be discussing two significant recent rulings. One is the 2nd District's reversal in Vergara v. California, pertaining to the constitutionality of state statutes governing public school teacher tenure and firing policies. The other ruling will be the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Welch v. the United States, which relates to mandatory minimum sentences in relation to certain federal criminal defendants. Professor Catherine Fisk from UC Irvine School of Law and Jeremy Rosen from Horvitz and Levy will join us to speak about Vergara. Professor Fisk contributed a recent column to the Daily Journal commending the court's decision. Mr. Rosen filed an amicus brief for the respondents who ended up on the losing side of the appeal. So, needless to say, our guests have divergent viewpoints to present. And Professor Hadar Aviram from UC Hastings School of Law, and who co-chairs Hastings Institute for Criminal Justice, will be here to speak about Welch, and specifically ways in which to view the ruling within a larger context wherein state and federal courts... And legislatures have seen more prone lately to give a second look to automatic and arguably overly punitive sentencing structures. The more meticulous among our listeners may note that neither Vergara nor Welch were filed during the past week. I can assure you that we here at the Daily Journal are cognizant of this fact as well, but seeing as this program, at least in completed form, did not exist when those opinions came down a couple of weeks ago, we thought we'd take the opportunity to speak about them today. Going forward, you can expect the program to feature discussion of rulings and other news that arise within the week that a given program airs. Without much further ado then, we'll begin by first hearing from Professor Catherine Fisk. We now have joining us Professor Catherine Fisk, the Chancellor's Professor of Law and co-director of the Center in Law, Society and Culture at the University of California Irvine School of Law. Professor Fisk, thanks very much for being on the program.
1: Thank you for having me. Of
0: course. And uh, so this morning we'll be talking about principally the case um, Vergara versus California that came down, I guess now it's been a couple of weeks, but its reverberations have been have been strong within the legal um, news community and indeed the, the general news um, community. I guess sort of to set it up, Plato's brought a facial challenge to California statutes relating to education. One dealt with teacher tenure, which granted teachers tenure after a period of two years Uh, The second statute they challenged was a dismissal statute, uh, which they claimed made it difficult to terminate ineffective teachers. And I believe the third statute they challenged dealt with using seniority as the basis for for terminating teachers as opposed to other criteria. So the lower court did deem these three statutes unconstitutional as as violative of the, the California Equal Protection Clause. But now, on appeal, that decision was reversed. So I was hoping you could sort of take us through the opinion um, as, as you read it.
1: Sure. Uh, these uh, This litigation challenged, as you say, five statutes covering those three topics. Seniority, after two years, um, the process by which a school district can terminate a teacher, and the statutes providing that when schools need to reduce the teaching force either because of budget cuts or because of declining enrollment, seniority is the principle that they use to decide who is retained and who is let go. There was an eight-week long trial in the trial court in which both sides introduced evidence about how these statutes operate in practice. And I think it's fair to say that they had sharply different views about what they mean in practice. The plaintiffs produced uh, expert testimony and other testimony that tenure, uh, seniority, and cause for firing cause uh, poor teachers to remain in schools. The uh, defendants introduced expert and other testimony establishing that a good principal Uh, can successfully decide who to tenure within the two-year period, can fire underperforming teachers, and that seniority is the best way to decide who to lay off when the teaching staff has to be reduced. The trial court decided that the plaintiffs had shown that um, these statutes result in underperforming teachers being concentrated in schools with large proportions of poor and minority students. And so the defendants appealed and the California Court of Appeal unanimously reversed, finding that there was no evidence that tenure, um, cause for discharge or seniority is the cause of whatever disparities exist between uh, schools with wealthier populations and schools with poorer populations.
0: And, and you uh, you contributed a column then to our newspaper last week um, in which you write that this was the correct decision. Could you tell me sort of why um, you feel that this was the, the correct decision for the court to make?
1: It was the correct decision because the plaintiffs failed to show that teacher tenure seniority is the basis for layoff or the procedural protections that teachers have before they're fired are the cause of poor teachers being concentrated in um, poor schools or minority schools. And it's crucial to establish that before you challenge a government policy as denying poor or minority people equal protection you establish that the government policy is the cause of the unequal treatment of poor and minority students as opposed to wealthier or whiter students and the plaintiffs never produced evidence of causation. And indeed, there are a lot of reasons to believe that whatever disparities exist between poorer and wealthier school districts are not the result of teacher tenure or other job protections for teachers, but rather are the result of disparities in the amount of money that is available in the schools, disparities in the quality of the administration at the schools, disparities in the kinds of extracurricular resources that children bring to schools. And I think finally, it's important to note that um, the heart of the Vergara plaintiff's theory is that teaching essentially should be an at-will job. That is, you could be fired at will. There's no reason to believe that you'll get better teachers if you make the job less desirable. Sure. For example, if a particular teacher wants to take on a controversial subject, like teaching about Islam, or teaching sure. about politics, or getting the students to debate any of the hot-button issues that divide us today. You could imagine a teacher being afraid to teach a rigorous curriculum for fear of pushback from parents. And so there's a good argument that protecting teachers from arbitrary or retaliatory firings is actually going to attract a better caliber of person into the teaching profession rather than protect poor quality teachers.
0: Sure. It sounds like rather strongly you feel that the policy behind these statutes is generally a good one. I'd be curious if you feel that you personally and the court part ways a little bit on that point. I'd just like to read a a brief passage from towards the end of the opinion the court writes. It is possible that the challenge statutes in the way they pertain to teacher tenure and seniority lead to a higher number of grossly ineffective teachers being in the educational system than a hypothetical alternative statutory scheme would. Um, this possibility may present a problem with policy, but it does not in itself give rise to an equal protection violation. I thought that language was a little bit interesting and perhaps suggesting the court itself might think there could be some knobs to be tweaked in terms of educational policy, but that it's just not in the position itself, the court, to do it. Um, So I'd be curious if you think that these statutes may have some undesirable effects, um, or if you think, like you say, they. Um, are good or at least better than certainly flipping them or just removing them altogether.
1: In a particular school, one could imagine that these statutes might have the effect of causing poorer teachers, for example, in times of budget crisis, to be retained in the job and sure. better teachers to be let go. Um, Or it might also be the case that making it hard to fire underperforming teachers does result in um, a bad teacher staying in the classroom because the principal concludes that it's too much effort to fire him or her. So yes, in a particular circumstance, job protections for workers can result in bad workers staying on the job. There's no question about it. What I think the plaintiff never showed was that eliminating job protections would on balance result in better people going into teaching and staying in teaching or whether in some circumstances the absence of job protections might not result in good teachers being fired for retaliatory reasons. And so with any policy, you have to look at its effect in the aggregate. And the parties in Vergara didn't litigate the question because it would be very hard to litigate whether on balance across the board, three years or four years or five years to tenure or whether some slightly different process would, on balance, improve the overall caliber of the teaching profession in California. What the court finds is that that's fundamentally a legislative or a policy judgment, and that's the place that this kind of debate should be had. Sure. That
0: makes sense. I, I know the court also focused at least a, a couple times where it made mention to the fact that, that the challenge was a, a facial challenge to the statutes. And it seemed to me at least to suggest that perhaps if the case was brought a different way, that it could have led to a different sort of analysis or indeed perhaps a different result. Do you um, see any of that suggestion in, in the opinion as well?
1: I think it's there. I think if a particular in a particular school district the, a group of plaintiffs wanted to challenge that as applied in that school district, the seniority principal cause for discharge or a two-year two tenure clock results in poor and minority schools getting a concentration of weak teachers and wealthier and whiter schools get a concentration of stronger teachers, that lawsuit could still be brought. Okay. But one of the things that the Court of Appeals pointed out, which was based on what the evidence in the trial court had shown, is that decisions about how to administer the tenure process what to do with underperforming teachers and how to lay teachers off in times of budget crisis are made at the district level not at the statewide level and we all know that there are huge variations in the quality of schools from one community to another in this state i happen to live in the city of irvine and the irvine unified school district has excellent teachers and excellent schools that operate under the same statutes that were challenged in the Vergara case. The defendant's theory was that with good administrators and all the other things that make teaching in a place like Irvine a rewarding job, you can attract and retain an excellent teaching staff, even in times of budget crisis, as is done in the Irvine Unified School District or the Palo Alto, excuse me, Palo Alto schools or um, individual magnet schools and even in Los Angeles Unified School District. So the trial court evidence showed that some administrators and some school districts do fine under the existing statutory regime and therefore a plaintiff who'd want to challenge them would have to focus on a particular school district and demonstrate why the statutes cause underperforming teachers to be retained in the schools.
0: Sure, that makes sense. This opinion definitely seems to have polarized people a little bit i know we had some contributions to our our perspectives section last week um that came down sort of on the other side one person said you know this is simply union protectionism and it's at the expense of our children um well, i guess i'd be curious to know what sort of your response would be to those people
1: i think I don't think this is union protectionism. I think the question is whether treating teaching as an at-will job, like working at McDonald's, for example, is the cause of poor quality teaching in California schools, or whether adding job, having job protections for teachers is more likely to recruit and retain high quality teachers in public education. Think about the difference between, let's say, retail employment and airline pilots. Airline pilots and airline flight attendants have been unionized as long as as well as mechanics and gate agents and all of that. Those have been union jobs in most airlines for a very long period of time. And I think most people feel that the quality of airline employees is quite high. Sure. And making those at will jobs would surely result in those being lower paid jobs. I don't know that it would necessarily improve the quality of the workforce in the airlines or in public schools, for that matter. I think the key, the reason why I should say that tenure protections, as well as other seniority and cause for discharge protections were added to state law, was a desire in the early 20th century to improve the quality of the teaching force. 150 years ago, public school teachers were not particularly well-trained or well-educated. There was quite a bit of turnover in the job because it was a predominantly female occupation, and it was an occupation that young women did for a couple of years before getting married and going home to stay at home with their children. Sure. It was thought that that was not a good teaching force for educating children. There was particularly a desire to recruit more men into the profession of teaching and to make it instead of sort of a short-term job that one did for a couple of years, to make it into a profession where people would stay in it for a career. Sure. And so it was the desire to improve the quality of teaching and to make teaching a profession rather than just a job that prompt legislatures in most states to create tenure protections and other just cause protections for teachers. And it worked. Men became teachers more than they had been in the past, and teaching became a profession rather than just a very low-paid job. I think the key that all of us could agree on is, what can we do to recruit the best and the brightest of our college graduates or graduate school graduates into teaching and to make that a job where they want to stay for their career. Sure. And I don't think being able to fire people at will is the way to do it.
0: Sure. Then I guess sort of jumping off from there, you touched on this a little bit earlier when we talked about figuring out potential ways to improve the educational quality in the state. One might be an increase of, of funding, a, a greater monetary dedication from the legislature, and that, that specifically was the issue in a second case that came out recently the, the campaign for quality education, or the Robles Wong versus California um, appellate ruling that came down last week. And, and there, I believe, and you can correct me if I have this wrong, but I believe the uh, the issue was um, plaintiffs felt the California Constitution provided for a right to education of quote unquote some quality, and that with a relatively, certainly compared to other states, um, perhaps an ineffectual funding scheme the legislator was violating that uh, constitutional mandate. But the uh, the holding of the appellate court was, they, they ruled against the the plaintiffs and said that the constitution does not include necessarily you know, qualitative or, or funding elements, just sort of a broad mandate that education be provided. Um, were you surprised by this f- ruling at all?
1: I wasn't surprised by the ruling in campaign for quality education, Robles Wong versus California, in that I think it's, similar in some sense to Vergara in that both cases involve the courts saying we could have a debate about how to improve the quality of California public schools, especially the quality of California public schools in school districts with high concentrations of poor and minority students. Some people think that eliminating job protections for teachers is the way to do that. Some people think that increasing the funding available so that California is not 47th out of 50 or 49th out of 50 or 50th out of 50 in various measures of um, resources devoted to public education. In both cases, the State Court of Appeal said that's fundamentally a policy debate to be had in the legislature. In the case of Campaign for Quality Education, the theory behind that lawsuit, like in Vergara, these kinds of lawsuits have been filed all over the country, but the theory behind it is that state constitutions that guarantee a right uh, to public education, have to guarantee a certain minimal quality of public education. For example, if the state decided for financial reasons to reduce the school year to three weeks sure. or to um, have school buildings but refuse to provide books right. or to pay teachers um, The minimum wage, and expect them to provide all their own school supplies, or something like that. That that would violate the constitutional requirement that the state provide public education. Courts across country in these minimum quality funding cases like Campaign for Quality Education have split. The majority have held that the state constitution's guarantee of a public education means that it is a guarantee to a certain minimal quality of public education and that buildings that are too dilapidated, classes that are too large, funding that is too minimal violates this state constitutional protection. In Uh, Campaign for quality education, a split panel of the California Court of Appeal joined the minority position among states, which is to hold essentially that the courts will not entertain arguments that the level of education has fallen below the constitutional minimum.
0: Sure. I guess that sort of sets up um, a relatively strong likelihood for review by the, the state Supreme Court, would you agree?
1: Yes, I think there is a possibility that the state Supreme Court might take the campaign for quality education case for two reasons. One, the California Court of Appeal is in the minority of state courts across the country in addressing this question. And two, the Court of Appeal decision was a split decision. There was uh, two justices felt that the state constitution does not contain a judicially enforceable minimum standard, at least as raised in this case, and one justice, Justice Pollack, felt that it does. And the Campaign for Quality Education case also appears to state a somewhat broader proposition that, that at least as the system is currently operating, there is no constitutional challenge that could be brought. Um, whereas in Vargara, as you pointed out, as we talked about a little while ago, the Court of Appeal explicitly left open the possibility of bringing an as applied challenge mm-hmm. against a particular school district that has operated such that the worst teachers are concentrated in the lowest performing schools.
0: Right. Jumping back to to Vergara, just to conclude, I'd be curious how you see that case potentially moving forward. Do you see it um, potentially being granted review by the, the high court um, in its current state or perhaps being reworked and brought again in a, a, a different manner?
1: It's hard to know, but I think that the Court of Appeal decision in Vergara is very thorough sure. and very... Uh, careful to point out that the problem in the Vergara case is that the theory that job protections for teachers cause poor quality education can't be sustained given the fact that the administration of those statutes happens at the local level individual school districts, individual principals. And the evidence in the case showed, after an eight-week trial, that some school districts do both well-funded and school districts like Irvine or Palo Alto, for example, although neither of those school districts was a focus of this litigation. But for example, the Oakland Unified School District, which has a very high concentration of poor and minority students, or the Riverside School District, that certain principals have experimented with different ways to recruit and retain high-quality teachers, even in schools that you would expect to have serious trouble keeping a high-quality teaching force because the school dis- the school has such a high concentration of kids who really struggle to learn for reasons having nothing to do with the schools. And so I would think, given the factual nature of the question of which kinds of personnel policies cause good teachers to be in some schools rather than others, I would think that is not a case that the California Supreme Court should take, but rather the court might say a better crafted lawsuit that is more focused on the question of what policies cause bad teachers to keep teaching is could be brought in the trial court, and then they might be willing to take that case. So sure. I think the California Supreme Court probably will not, and I think certainly it should not take okay. the Vergara case. Sure.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much. Those are pretty much the the extent of the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about this case or um, the uh, the campaign for quality education case uh, before we before we leave?
1: I think. The only thing I would add about both of them is that I have four kids. My youngest is about to go to college. Anybody who has sent kids to school knows that the key to good education is for a well-run school to keep good quality teachers in the classroom year after year after year. And I think that both Vergara and the Campaign for Quality Education case show that what most parents who have any choices about this matter know, a school with good administrators and plenty of resources can do a lot to provide good education for kids. And I don't think that anybody could make a very under-resourced school with bad administration be a place that smart and dedicated teachers would want to stay for the long haul. And so the question of what it's going to take to improve the quality of California public schools or the public schools in any state is really a complicated question. But at a minimum, it has to involve adequate resources and good management that makes teaching uh, a profession that people want to stay in.
0: It makes, makes sense. I greatly appreciate your input regarding these two very important rulings. And, and thanks, thanks again for joining us. It was a, a pleasure talking to you.
1: It's a pleasure being on the show. Thank you. <laughs>
0: That again was Catherine Fisk, the Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Irvine, and her viewpoint on Vergara differs sharply from that of our next guest, Jeremy Rosen, a partner with Horvitz and Levy, who filed an amicus brief for the respondents in the case, the original plaintiffs. Uh, Incidentally, if you'd like to take a look at that brief, you can find it on the Weekly Appellate Report page at dailyjournal.com. And now we'll go ahead and get to our conversation with Jeremy Rosen. Joining us now is Jeremy Rosen, partner with Horvitz & Levy. He's a, a certified appellate specialist with the California State Bar and has argued before the California Courts of Appeal, the Ninth Circuit, and the California Supreme Court. Mr. Rosen, thanks very much for joining us. Happy to be here. I know that you and some associates at your firm were among the many parties that filed amicus briefs. So I'd be curious if you could tell me when and how you and your firm became involved in this litigation.
2: Well, uh, I've personally, I've, I've, for a long time, been very interested uh, in uh, helping public education. I think that it is an absolute travesty that we are failing uh, our children in, in the way that we are doing so on a daily basis in the public schools. And you know, I'm uh, rather fortunate uh, that I'm I'm able to choose the school that that my child uh, goes to, uh, but most uh, people don't have that uh, opportunity. And it's, I think, incumbent upon society as a whole and government to ensure that the uh, public schools are great uh, and provide a foundation for anyone uh, to, to learn and, and to be able to leave high school and go to college or to trade school or to get a job uh, and to uh, make something of their lives. And for various uh, reasons, the the schools are failing our children. And, and so I think it's important as lawyers uh, to the extent that we can uh, provide through uh, pro bono and other opportunities uh, try to do what we can to help uh, improve our, our school system. And this is one of a number of cases I've uh, been involved in and I think is is a very important one. And I hope uh, we can talk more about the Court of Appeal opinion. I hope this is not uh, the last word because I think the, the, the only loser uh, in the Court of Appeal opinion are the, the children of California who will continue
0: to suffer. Sure. We'll we'll definitely get to the the potential future for the Vergara case, and we'll go ahead right now and jump into the the opinion. Uh, essentially, the court of appeal seemed to have two bases for its opinion uh, reversing the trial court. One seemed to be that the the unlucky subset of students defined by the plaintiffs, who would be assigned to these ineffective teachers, that group was deemed not sufficiently identifiable for an equal protection claim. And then as to the second class described by the plaintiffs, the poor minority students who tended more often to be assigned ineffective teachers um, as a result of these statutes, the court said, well, in fact, it's not the statutes themselves that, that have this effect, but rather staffing decisions made by administrators. And so the facial challenge to the statute uh, would fail. I, I take it you're likely not entirely persuaded by by these lines of reasoning. Could you please tell me why?
2: Sure, I'm not, and I'll start with the uh, the, the subclass of poor and minority students who sure. who I think are particularly aggrieved by by the status quo. Um, and you know what, what the Court of Appeal did here, I think, is quite extraordinary in that uh, you know the trial judge heard eight weeks uh, of testimony, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and 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 dozens and dozens of witnesses and dozens and hundreds of uh, exhibits and made uh, detailed factual findings about you know the effect these statutes have on the very on the students and in the various uh, classes and and generally uh, the, what a court of appeal will do is uh, and what they're re- required to do is to uh, defer to the factual findings made by the trier uh, of fact whether it's a jury uh, or in this case a, a trial judge uh, who who heard all the witnesses and what the court of appeal opinion did is is it instead of deferring to the facts found uh by the trial court and amply supported uh by substantial evidence in the trial court the court of appeal cherry picked evidence uh that went the other way that the trial court the trier of fact did not credit uh and did not believe uh i think there if if you if you looked at the eight weeks uh of, uh, of evidence there was ample evidence as the trial court found that these five particular statutes are directly causing harm to poor and minority students and uh because it it creates the condition uh for uh, having bad teachers uh, while well, i guess it's true as a technical matter that administrators uh pick who is going to be in what school but what sure. but that sort of misses the point the point as was found after the, this lengthy in comprehensive trial is that the five statutes uh, governing tenure, dismissal, and reduction in force basically tie the hands of administrators and make it impossible to uh, guarantee to the children and especially poor and minority students their constitutional right to an education, and that's what this case is all about. The California Supreme Court in in the 70s was a leader in in finding that education is a fundamental right under our state uh, constitution and the trial court here found uh, expressly that the fundamental right to an education is being denied to millions of students because of these five statutes and sure. and the court of appeal should have deferred to those fact findings
0: so you think perhaps too much was made by that bit of attenuation between the statutes and the the staffing decisions by by the court uh, perhaps well i think
2: that yeah i think that's a real red herring because you know it, it you know the fact that you know, an administrator, you know, it's a, it's a stack deck. If you go and, and someone, say, has, you know, $20 uh, uh, in their wallet uh, and you go and steal that $20 and then uh, the person goes and can't afford lunch, I mean, I guess you could technically say it's because there's no money uh, in their wallet. Right. But the real root cause of that is because someone stole it. Sure. Well, here, yes, it's an administrator making the decision of teacher X going to t- school Y, but they 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 have a stacked deck because because of these uh, as the trial court found after extensive fact findings because of these five statutes uh it's it's impossible for the administrators to give qualified excellent teachers to all of the students uh in the state of California which is a violation of their uh, fundamental right to an education
0: sure i think the court did give a bit of suggestion or some hint that it that it may have viewed these current statutes to be perhaps suboptimal. They mentioned sort of in conclusion that these statutes may lead to a higher number of ineffective teachers than a hypothetical alternative scheme, but that nonetheless these statutes do not themselves equal an equal protection violation. What do you think exactly of that verbiage? Do you think that will be important in a potential appeal? Do you think the court is trying to say that it thinks these statutes you know, aren't ideal and, and would like to change it if viewed that it had the power to do so?
2: Well, I think that's sort of a perfect example of where the opinion collapses under its own weight because uh, under if, if you're going to be looking at a fundamental right and applying strict scrutiny, which you would in any case of a fundamental right, the fact that the statutes create Disparities in education, which the court of appeal is acknowledging, is sufficient to show that they should be struck down. This is not a mere, you know, economic regulation, you know, that would would, would get the benefit of a, a much more deferential, right. you know, rational basis review. Where under rational basis review, sure, it's fine if one policy that the state pursues is suboptimal because the, the elected officials in the state have wide discretion to do whatever suboptimal things they want. But when fundamental rights uh, are at stake, uh, uh, and especially the fundamental rights of poor and minority children, uh, the state is not permitted to be deliberately suboptimal, which is exactly what uh, they're doing here and what the trial court found uh, quite explicitly.
0: Sure. Um, We just heard from Professor Catherine Fisk from uh, UC Irvine, who feels um, about 180 degrees differently need you about this opinion. And one thing that she said is that, well, were these statutes to be struck down, it, it very likely would have sort of the opposite effect than what was desired, that if you would were to lower job protection, that qualified teachers would you know, be less uh, encouraged or less willing to pursue employment in the, the California public school system. What would you um, respond with to to a, an assertion such as that?
2: Well, that's just empirically false if you look at all of the very fine private schools throughout the state or charter schools throughout the state which do not have um, the the same you know ridiculous tenure at at, after you know two years that the public school system has and they're able to retain outstanding teachers because you know people want to become teachers because uh, and and those who are good teachers want to become teachers because they care about children they care about educating our next generation. And and they want to do something productive with their lives. Uh, People don't decide they want to be teachers because they have automatic, you know, they can't be fired for being incompetent, you know, after they're on the job for two years. I mean, you know, no other job has that level of protection. And and people who are good don't need that level of protection because they're they're not going to be at, at any risk. I mean, you know, as a lawyer, you know, I'm judged by how well I perform. And if I'm a bad lawyer, clients are going to stop hiring me, sure. you know, but, but that doesn't deter me from being a lawyer, uh, and, I, and I just think it's absurd to say that it would uh, deter people from becoming, or at least good teachers, from becoming teachers, because you have all sorts, you have hundreds of thousands of teachers who don't have that protection in, in other forms of schools who uh, have very long and productive and wonderful careers.
0: Sure. I guess sort to take me through where you see this case going in the future for Vergara. Do you anticipate um, a petition for review being granted by the the California Supreme Court, and if so, how do you think they might come down?
2: Well, you know, uh, you know, I, I think you know it, it's difficult to, to predict how sure. you know any court is going to rule, and you know, and petitions for review are statistically very difficult. You know, the Supreme Court is you know quite correctly very selective sure. uh, in the cases it takes. It takes about two to of the cases brought before it, Uh, but generally, uh, you know, the Supreme Court wants to take cases of of extreme statewide importance, and, you know, I can't think of anything of greater uh, importance to the state than than the education of of our children, and so, uh, you know, I I guess I would be cautiously optimistic that uh, the Supreme Court would want to uh, uh, take this case, and and I'd be cautiously optimistic that, that the Supreme Court would... Uh, come to a different conclusion uh, than the Court of Appeal. You know, I obviously have very strong views on this. I, I'm not blind to the fact that people have strong views on the other side. And, sure. you know, that's also what, what makes our country great, And our, uh, is that we, we can have this vigorous debate. But, um, you know, I think for, you know, for the sake of the children, I hope uh, that the court uh, does take this case and, and look at it very seriously. And, and more fundamentally, you know, I hope that regardless of what happens in this court case, that, uh, that at least this opinion sort of highlights the urgent problems because, as you point out, you know even the court of appeal who reversed the trial court
0: right.
2: uh, acknowledges that the current statutes are suboptimal for you know millions of of children. And you know I would encourage you know our legislative leaders to to try to uh, come to a, a solution because uh, you know no one benefits uh, if we have a generation who's not well educated.
0: Sure. Well said. Well, those are all the questions that I had prepared for you. Is there anything else that you you feel you'd like to add?
2: I guess the w- one thing to go back—I don't think I ever answered the first part of your first question on oh, sure. the uh, t- sort of the unlucky, as the you know the, the unlucky group. Right. Whether yeah, what that's a, that. sure. uh, a definable class, and I don't see why they're not definable. Uh, there was plenty of evidence uh, at trial that indicated you know which children and which classrooms were were right. being severely disadvantaged. I mean, the fact that you can't put them, you know, label them by uh, race or sex or, you know, some other suspect classification doesn't mean that it's not a definable group. And I think uh, it's, especially since education itself is a fundamental right, if you have a subset of students who is getting a suboptimal education, uh, they are having their fundamental constitutional rights being violated uh, this very moment. And, And I don't see why that is not a definable enough group. Especially since the trial court heard evidence to define the group.
0: Sure. Well, um, I guess we'll we'll leave it there, and we'll 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 watch um, what what else happens in this case. And for now, I appreciate you joining us. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Mr. Rosen. Thanks again. Well,
2: thanks. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. Okay, that was Jeremy Rosen from Horvitz and Levy sharing his perspective on the Vergara ruling, and he mentioned how reasonable people might well disagree on on the outcome of that case, and certainly his input and the perspective from Catherine Fisk provide a good example of just that. We'll go ahead and switch gears now from education to criminal justice and speak with Professor Hadar Aviram from UC Hastings about the recent US Supreme Court opinion in Welch v. the United States, in which the court deemed as a substantial rule change last term's opinion declaring the residual clause of the Armed Career Criminal Act to be void for vagueness, which could open the door to many habeas appeals from inmates sentenced under the residual clause, and which also continues a trend of courts at both the federal and state levels, reconsidering automatic sentencing structures. Joining us now is Professor Hadar Aviram of the UC Hastings College of Law. She is the Harry and Lillian Hastings Research Chair, the Vice President of the Western Society of Criminology, and the author of Cheap on Crime, Recession-era Politics and the Transformation of American Punishment. Professor, thanks very much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: So we'll go ahead and jump right in to the ruling in Welch versus the United States. Briefly, as background, the the federal law prescribes a a 10-year maximum punishment for a felon found in possession of a firearm, but that punishment is is, uh, enhanced under the Armed Career Criminal Act of 1984, if that felon has three or more priors of serious drug offenses or violent felonies, then the enhancement creates a punishment of a 15-year mandatory minimum and up to a life sentence maximum. And the definition of a violent felony under the ACCA includes sort of a catch-all clause, as I understand, called the Residual Clause, which says that if a crime otherwise involves conduct that presents a serious potential risk of physical injury to another, then it qualifies as a a violent felony. So... Mm -hmm. The petitioner here was arrested and sentenced under the Armed Career Criminal Act and exhausted his direct appeal and began a collateral appeal challenging that residual clause. And he was unsuccessful and his collateral appeal ended just before last year's ruling at the Supreme Court in Johnson versus uh, United States, which declared the residual clause unconstitutional for vagueness. So now Welch's case asks the court to consider whether Johnson announces a new substantive rule such that it would apply retroactively to his case. So now I'll go ahead and hand it off to you to walk us through the Supreme Court's opinion in this case.
3: Of course. So Welch, the petitioner in this case, is one of many people who were sentenced under the Armed Career Criminal Act before the decision in Johnson, which happened last year. Sure. And therefore, the question is, uh, now that the residual clause has been pronounced void for vagueness, Uh, How does that impact the sentence of all these people, some of whom have been doing considerable stretches of time in prison and are now no longer able to appeal via direct review? So the general rule, in uh, it's worth worth remembering, that the general rule regarding retroactivity is that usually new rules that the Supreme Court creates operate prospectively. That is, they only impact cases that happen after the rule is enacted, sure. and they apply to cases that are still alive when the decision is given. So if, for example, somebody was already tried, but their direct appeal is pending when the Supreme Court announces the new rule, they might still be able to benefit from the new rule. Sure. However, if your case has become final before the new rule comes out, the general situation is that you can't benefit from it. This is in a decision called Griffith v. Kentucky. Now, there are two exceptions to this in which, uh, in which the new rule might operate retroactively. Sure. One of them is if the rule is what we call a watershed rule of criminal procedure, if it's such an important and, and dramatic rule and such a huge change that it makes sense, it feels fair to apply it retroactively, or if the rule is a substantive rule. These two exceptions come from Teague versus Lane, a case from uh, 1989. Sure. So the name of the game for collateral appellants that are trying to benefit from new rules is to do one of three things. Either to try to argue that the rule is not a new rule, which is to say it's just an application of an old rule, in which case there's nothing new. Sure. Or if it's a new rule, to argue either that it's a substantive rule or that it's a watershed rule of criminal procedure. Okay. Okay. And what Welch tried to do here is to, to argue, tried successfully, obviously, because the decision, uh, the decision ends up in his favor seven to one with uh, sure. Justice Thomas writing the, uh, the dissenting opinion. Uh, uh, Welch tries to get the court to say this rule falls into one of the two exceptions. This rule is a substantive rule or this rule is a watershed rule of criminal procedure, and that is what changes things. Sure. So the key here is to understand what's the distinction between a procedural rule and a substantive rule. So the first thing to sort of get off the table is this is not a watershed rule of criminal procedure. Right. For something to qualify as a watershed rule of criminal procedure, it has to be a real dramatic development. Okay. Something on the scale of Gideon versus Wainwright. Like sure. very few things that are not that dramatic would qualify. So your better bet, if you're a collateral uh, uh, a person seeking collateral uh, relief, your better bet is to try to classify whatever rule you're challenging as uh, a substantive rule. Sure. And this is what Welch was trying to do here. Basically, what he's saying is, now that the residual clause is void for vagueness, this whole law doesn't apply to this whole category of people who have committed these prior offenses that were not clearly defined in the Armed Career Criminal Act before the change. Sure. And this is because the test for what counts as a substantive rule, according to a decision called Schreer versus Sutherland, is that a substantive rule is something that either changes the face of a criminal prosecution, basically takes something that used to be a crime and makes it no longer a crime, or takes a whole category of people to whom a law applied and says the law no longer applies to you guys. Right.
0: right,
3: So his effort is to say, I am a member of a class of people who committed prior offenses, who, you know, might or might not have fallen into the residual clause, at this point, now that the residual clause is gone, now that it's been void for vagueness, our category can no longer be subjected to the, to the Armed uh, Career Criminal Act. And he right. is successful. The, the, the majority, 7 to 1, accepts the argument, accepts the way that he defines substantive rule. And in many ways, this is not a big surprise. This is a fairly straightforward application of the exception to the retroactivity rule.
0: And it's the the second example in a, in as many years, or I'm sorry, is it just this year that Montgomery versus Louisiana did um, something similar?
3: Yes, absolutely. So Montgomery versus Louisiana, this is this is why this is interesting because this might indicate you know a little opening in the habeas door sure. that uh, wasn't very leaning towards being open sure. in in the last few decades. Uh, But what we saw in Montgomery versus Louisiana was a pretty similar move. So Montgomery is an inmate at this point who is in his 60s who was sentenced to uh, an automatic life without parole sentence for a murder that he committed when he was 16. And he's doing time for a long time, so obviously all of his avenues for appeal have already been exhausted – so he can't benefit from any Supreme court rule. And after several decades that he's doing in prison in Louisiana, the Supreme court announces Miller versus Alabama, which is a case that says we can no longer sentence juveniles to life without parole under mandatory schemes. Right. So it's still possible to, to, to sentence someone to life without parole, but you have to carefully consider the circumstances, carefully consider the age, all sorts of things like that. You can no longer have a law that doesn't give you any discretion and apply to juveniles. Right. So Montgomery, uh, uh, uses that to basically say, I can benefit from the rule in Miller versus Alabama, it should operate retroactively, because it's a substantive rule. It's essentially a rule that takes all the people who were minors when they committed the crime, and it takes them out of the category to whom mandatory life without parole applies. So the move in Montgomery and the move in Welch is essentially the same legal move. Sure. And in both cases, the court finds that, yes, this is a substantive rule, and people should be able to benefit from it retroactively. I believe
0: substantive rule changes or, or rulings that are deemed to be substantive changes don't tend to come around all that frequently. So as you sort of hint, is this uh, a trend that might be continuing in the in the high court?
3: I think it's it's possible to provide several explanations for what we're seeing. Uh, and, and I guess it, it's... It depends on where you look at it. There's, there's different ways to explain it. Sure. One thing that we've been seeing in, in the last few years in general in the criminal justice system is the tendency to look again at draconian sentencing schemes that would lock ju- judges into the position of sentencing people for extremely long stretches of time with very little discretion and sure. question those. So we're seeing that in Miller, we're seeing that in Johnson, and in the retroactive applications, and respectively in Montgomery and in Wells. So in both of these cases, what the, the the recurring theme is this idea of the distaste of of these long sentences, and that That's could fair. be the factor of several several developments. I mean, it could be argued, and, and there are some people who argue that maybe we're somehow rediscovering the dignity of inmates and we're thinking more seriously about the dignity and about the effects of incarceration. Okay. Uh, folks who have read uh, Brown versus Plata uh, often say, hey, maybe the Supreme Court has awakened to the fact that. People in prison are not invisible, they're still, they're still in prison, we sure. still should consider them. The explanation that I think is uh, perhaps more persuasive is what I talk about in Cheap on Crime, which is that um, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, we're looking back at, uh, at the prisons and at the last four decades and we're thinking, well, how are we going to pay for all this? Sure. And, and maybe the push that we needed to reconsider all this is to see that, that the way we've done sentencing and incarceration is just not economically sustainable. And then maybe add to that a third factor, which is especially, I think, uh, uh, visible in Miller and in Montgomery, and that's the fact that in recent years, we're suddenly, since Roper versus Simmons, rediscovering childhood. We now have learned things from neuro and from developmental psychology about how people's frontal cortex, and with it, the ability to curb impulses, to resist peer pressure, to make better long-term decisions only develops uh, fully or close to fully in our mid-20s, which means that the large category that commits the lion's share of straight crime, we're talking uh, juveniles, young people, adolescents, people in their early 20s, we're seeing them at a slightly different light than we did in the last few years, especially in the era of the super predator that brought about a lot of these draconian sentences for young people. So, So I think all of these things coalesce together, and they may to some extent, although, again, the arguments in both cases are doctrinal legal arguments, but they may be informed by the fact that we no longer have the appetite and the enthusiasm for for this uh, draconian sentencing scheme.
0: Sure. Jumping back into the opinion and specifically into Thomas's dissent, this incipient trend that we're talking about, it sort of sounds like he's describing as the beginning of a dangerous, slippery slope, where he he says a couple things. He says this ruling transforms innumerable procedural rules into substantive ones, and he mentions that the retroactivity rules have become unmoored from the limiting principles that the court has invoked to justify the doctrine's existence in the first place. I'd be curious how you view Mm -hmm. his concern.
3: Yes, it was interesting to read Justice Thomas's dissent, and I think anybody reading the dissent was probably leaning back for a minute and thinking i wonder how justice calia would have voted on this case
0: yes yeah, would was, this have been eight, a seven
3: to two oh. or an eight to one case sure. and it's kind of hard to tell uh, justice thomas's decision in criminal justice especially in the context of collateral review basically have two things going on one of them is this this need to kind of close the door this fear that if we sort of give people a finger they're going to take the whole hand and you know the mm-hmm. the the dam of habeas is going to be, you know, on more than suddenly we're going to be flooded with petitions by people. So there's part of it is this procedural fear. Uh, and, and and it's quite possible that Justice Scalia would have shared this procedural fear if, if he were on the court as well. Uh, and, and Justice Thomas actually tries to hang to some technical aspects of the Void for Vagueness decision in Johnson to say, this is not really a substantive rule because Void for Vagueness actually comes from a due process type of of, of challenge. So, so, you know, so there are, you know, arguments that he tries to make to to, to perceive the case as as substantive. But the other thing to keep in mind is also that in general, Justice Thomas has been very concerned, especially with regard to violent crime, with the tendency to scale back a little bit the very punitive apparatus of of extreme punishment. Uh, In many decisions recently, when Justice Thomas is either in the dissent or in the majority, he will uh, review in detail the cruelty of the original crime, even if the crime was 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, he'll mm-hmm. talk about the victims with great sympathy. So so there is something there that that is, that is very raw and emotional beyond just the technical concern about the expansion of, of habeas offices.
0: Sure. The other question I would sort of have for you is where to place this ruling maybe in the context of... California criminal justice and sentencing reforms. We've seen more than one instance um, in the last few years, Prop 36 in 2012 and Prop 47 two years ago, and now I believe there very well may be another ballot initiative that will will perhaps Mm -hmm. be on the ballot this fall. Could you tell us, I guess, a little bit about that potential ballot proposition and just how to sort of view the trend in in California as well?
3: Sure. Sure. So I should probably specify that these decisions about retroactivity, in, in, the, in the sense of what they actually do in the world, they apply to the world of federal habeas. Sure. So they don't apply to the California prison population, they apply to federal inmates. But this sure. background of thinking about why are we doing this, why are we locking our discretion into these very lengthy sentences without giving judges more discretion, this is something that we can see changing in California as well. So, uh, so we're seeing several interesting propositions that may qualify for the ballot in California in, in that regard. Uh, so one is the proposition that Governor Brown is advancing, which basically has two parts. Uh, one of them is to eliminate direct filing for juveniles, which is to say to move, to shift the decision whether a juvenile is going to be sentenced in juvenile court or in adult court from the hands of the prosecutor to the hands of a judge in the okay. of a fitness hearing. So that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is to bring to a limited population and a limited basis the idea of a release, release through a parole board before all the enhancements kick in. I mean, right. one of the things that we know about how we've done sentencing in California, we, the whole the whole country has moved about 40 years ago from indeterminate to determinate sentencing, but the way we've done it, is without a sentencing commission and for the most part relying on uh, voter initiatives that create these patches of severity on top of the regular sentencing scheme that we have. So we have our version of the habitual offender law, which is the three strikes law, which sort of tacks onto felony sentencing and builds up your sentence to 25 to life upon the commission of the third felony. So one thing that we did, and, and this is after decades of seeing really upsetting stories in the media about people's third felony being, you know, stealing cheese or stealing a right. videotape or a pizza or something like that. We've seen that scaled back so that the third offense has to be serious and violent. I imagine that the new proposition is trying to bring in a little bit more discretion and a little bit less automatic application into this world. Uh, The Jerry Brown proposition is also trying to bring in more discretion. The idea here would be that for nonviolent offenders who are doing time in prison, which, by the way, after realignment is a fairly small population because we've actually moved a lot of these folks to jail. But for the folks that are doing time in prison uh, who are nonviolent, what we would do is the parole board would listen to their case after they finish their basic term without the enhancements. So this has the effect, of course, if the parole board finds that somebody is still dangerous and they don't want to let them out or they think that they haven't been rehabilitated, they still have the authority to keep them in. But at least it opens an escape hatch after the basic sentence before the enhancements start to pile up for people who are not deemed uh, a risk.
0: Touching on what you mentioned earlier about the, the Welch case, having an impact directly just on on federal inmates. What do you think the size of that population is uh, of federal inmates that may have been sentenced in the state of California and have collateral appeals relating to the residual clause? Could there be a decent influx of work for uh, appellate practitioners in the state?
3: So the size of that population is actually fairly difficult to estimate. I tried to to do an estimate over the weekend. I know that there's about 6,000 people who were sentenced under the Armed Criminal Act, but I don't know how many of them were sentenced under the residual clause. You have sure. to keep in mind that the Criminal Act still has a part that is still completely valid, which sure. actually addresses prior offenses that were violent and that are clearly defined in the Act. That part of the Act is alive and well. So, everybody who was sentenced under that part, the decision both in Johnson and in Welch do not apply to them. So, it's hard to tell how many of the 6,000 people are going to fall into that category. I estimate many, but I don't know how many, many, how, how many, many is. Okay.
0: Wonderful. Well, thanks uh, so much for joining us. It's been a very pleasant conversation and uh, we appreciate you coming on the program.
3: It's to do it, Brian. Thanks for calling. Okay.
0: And with that, we've reached the end of our program. I'd like to extend my sincere thanks to all of our guests, professors Catherine Fisk and Hadar Aviram and to Jeremy Rosen of Horbertson and Levy. And don't forget there's CLE credit available for your having listened to the program. You can find our short true-false test at the weekly appellate report page at dailyjournal.com. And thank you for, for tuning in. I hope to see you back next week for another weekly appellate report.